Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 37, originally recorded live on February 24, 2012. Traditional or conventional religion, specifically Judaism, is about a connection between the worshiper and God. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom explains how our connections to each other without a connection to God is one of the strengths of humanistic Judaism. The International Institute for Humanistic Judaism Colloquium will be held on the campus of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois from April 20th to the 22nd, 2012. Join us for an exploration of how interfaith and intercultural families will be the future of the Jewish people. Additionally, this is an opportunity to come meet humanistic Jews from all over the world and enjoy the wonderful spring weather we are experiencing in Chicago. More information, including online registration for both the entire colloquium or just individual days, can be found on the Institute website, iishj.org. I hope to see you there. There's a man who lived in the first half of the 18th century. We don't know a lot about him, but we know some things. He was the founder of a movement, in this case not humanistic Judaism, but Hasidic Judaism. His name was Israel ben Eliezer, but he was known as the Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name. In other words, a miracle worker, someone who could use the name of God to improve the lives of the people around him, through magical powers and amulets and all kinds of other things. There are a lot of legends about the Baal Shem Tov. His followers created their followers, who created their followers, which created the wide variety of sects and competing versions of Hasidic Judaism today. They may all look the same, but they aren't the same, and they certainly don't like each other, because the closer you are, the more you distinguish yourself. Though it's not a model of coexistence today. But in the founding period of the Baal Shem Tov, there were stories upon stories of things that he would do and things that he would say, the deeds of the master. And one of those stories that's related takes place at the time of the High Holidays when he gave his disciple a series of kavanot, intentions, things to think about while he was playing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. But the disciple lost the piece of paper on which the intentions were written and couldn't remember what they were. And he was devastated because he had been given a job by the master and he had failed him this most important time of the year. And so he played the shofar, but he played with a broken arm. And after the services, he comes up to the rabbi, and he says, I blew it. (laughs) (laughs) I lost the intentions. I I feel terrible. The Baal Shem Tov says, A king's palace has many rooms and many sanctuaries, and there are different keys for each doorway. But the master key of all is the axe, which may open all the locks of all the gates. So intentions are keys. Every gate has a different intention. And the master key is the broken heart. There are many ways to play well, to perform, to achieve a higher level, but the master key is the broken heart. To be human is to face a very painful condition. Life is suffering, 
I didn't make that up. <laughs> and although it's a Buddhist teaching, it sounds very Jewish. <laughs> you know, I can imagine the Jewish person hearing the Buddha saying, life is suffering, and they're saying, news? What? <laughs> this, is, this is profound wisdom. Uh, I mean, in fact, uh, Jews tend to get nervous if they're not suffering, uh, or they inflict some more suffering on each other just to make sure there's enough suffering to go around. Now, life is difficult. We have pain, we have suffering, and there are traditional interpretations of what that suffering means. You know, if religion does anything, it provides you comfort in difficult moments, and there are plenty of difficult moments to go around. So what is the traditional response to suffering? Why do bad things happen? Why is there pain? Why are our our hearts broken? The answer is, as you say at every funeral, Baruch Dayan Emet, Blessed is the true judge. If things are bad, if you are suffering, then look to yourself. Look in the mirror. What did you do? Because the world is just, says the tradition. And if you are suffering, then there must be something going on. Because the author of all would not make you suffer in vain. What have you done? Maybe what have your leaders done? After all, if the rabbi is corrupt, if the king is corrupt, if the government is corrupt, maybe even others are responsible for what happens to you. You may not believe it, but in the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox worlds, there's a very simple explanation for the Holocaust. It was all those Jews who were assimilating. And we were all punished, even though many, many very, very Orthodox Jews were killed during the Holocaust. Why? Not because they assimilated, but because other Jews assimilated and they were caught up in the net. There's a wonderful phrase that the federations are fond of using, kol Yisrael aravim zevazeh, all of Israel is responsible one for the other. The idea that we have to take care of each other. But it can also be applied this way, that if you do wrong, I might get hit. Well, this rationale is a kind of blame the victim approach to suffering. If you suffer, you get to add the punishment of guilt on top of whatever suffering you're dealing with, because obviously you deserve it. When Tavia the Milkman reflects on the Jewish experience and the suffering Jews have endured over the centuries, he says, if we're the chosen people and we get this, once in a while, choose someone else. Well, if someone else is not chosen, then we have to face the reality that we suffer. Jews suffer, human beings suffer. And some of us have learned a different lesson, not the lesson of tradition, that we deserve it, that it's our fault. It's a humanist response. It goes back to the days of Epicurus, the Greek philosopher. There is no virtue to suffering. Now, we can certainly make the best of it. We can try to learn from our suffering. We know that sometimes there is short-term pain for a long-term gain. You may have to go through chemotherapy to keep you alive. You may have to strain at exercise to become stronger. You may have knee replacement surgery to fix the problem, and it's painful, but in the long run it's worth it. But suffering in and of itself is not virtuous. It's not necessary. It's not required to be a good person. This is not the case of saying, thank you, sir, may I have another every time you face pain. So how do we respond to this suffering? This is part of life. Even if we say there's no virtue, we know that we have to face it. Well, let me share with you another story by the modern Jewish writer Saul Bellow. It's a marvelous short story called The Old System. 
In this story, there's a family that's torn apart over jealousy, over money, over a business deal gone wrong. And in the end, there was a split between two siblings, Isaac and Tina. Isaac wants to see Tina again. He wanted to have his mother's wedding ring, but she took it from the body, would not give it to him, and said, if you want to come see me, bring me $20,000. She felt he owed him, that he owed her from his business deal that went wrong. And year after year, he went to apologize, and she would not see him, she would not see him. And so finally, she's on her deathbed. The cancer has spread, and he shows up with a suitcase with $20,000. So he walks into the room, and this is what happened. And the story is being told by their cousin, Dr. Braun, who is a rational man who is thinking back on the story with all of the strength of his dispassionate analysis. It's all there, said Isaac. But she swept the briefcase from her, and in a choked voice, she said, no, take it. He went to kiss her. Her free arm was lifted and tried to embrace him. She was too feeble, too drugged. He felt the bones of his obese sister. Death, the end, the grave. They were weeping. And her son, turning away at the foot of the bed, his mouth twisted open, the tears running from his eyes. Tina's tears were much thicker and slower. The ring she had taken from Rose was tied to Tina's wasted finger with dental floss. She held out her hand to the nurse. It was all prearranged. The nurse cut the thread. Tina said to Isaac, not the money. I don't want it. You take Mama's ring. Dr. Braun, bitterly moved, tried to grasp what emotions were. What good were they? What were they for? No one wanted them now. Perhaps the cold eye was better on life, on death. But again, the cold of the eye would be proportional to the degree of heat within. But once humankind had grasped its own idea that it was human, and human through such passions, it began to exploit, to play, to disturb for the sake of exciting disturbance, to make an uproar, a crude circus of feelings. So the bronze wept for Tina's death. Isaac held his mother's ring in his hand. Dr. Braun, too, had tears in his eyes. Oh, these Jews, these Jews, their feelings, their hearts. Dr. Braun often wanted nothing more than to stop all this. For what came of it? One after another, you gave over your dying. One by one they went. You went. Childhood, family, friendship, love were stifled in the grave. And these tears, when you wept them from the heart, you felt you justified something, understood something. But what did you understand? Again, nothing. It was only an imitation of understanding, a promise that mankind might, might, mind you, eventually through its gift, which might, might again be a divine gift, comprehend why it lived, why life, why death. And again, why these particular forms, these Isaacs and these Tinas? When Dr. Braun closed his eyes, he saw, red on black, something like molecular processes, the only true heraldry of being as later, in the close black darkness when the short day ended, he went to the dark kitchen window to have a look at stars, these things cast outward by a great beginning spasm billions of years ago. It's tempting to side in that old debate between reason and emotion with reason, rational, what do we need to do, 
What is important? Who are we? Who can we make ourselves? We can close off. But when we hear these stories of these Isaacs and these Tinas, these people whom we love, and people whom we know loved, we can open up in response to suffering. In the founding period of the Hasidic movement, there was an opposition to that movement. But it turns out the movement was so strong that the opposition became known as the opposition. The Mitnagdim. They were the establishment. But they were interested in rational thought. Strict, punctilious observance of all the details of the law. The primary observance is to study, to rationally analyze the law. On the other side were the Hasidic Jews, whose essence was in the word chesed, love. God doesn't want you to study, they said. God wants you to love to be enthusiastic, to be joyful. They're the ones that pick up people on chairs at weddings, not the midnight group. They're the ones who dance with joy at weddings, at celebrations. It's a sign of their love for God that they dance. Now, who do you think was more popular? Rational, logical study of the law? Loving, jumping, Joyfully opening your heart. No contest. No contest. Now the irony is that while we would interpret this psychologically, interpersonally, seeing openness as a wonderful skill to cultivate in our relationships to each other, in the Hasidic world, it's simply directed up. It's vekut, it's cleaving to God. It's chesed, it's being the chesed, the lover of a rabbi or a Rebbe, as they refer to him, not your fellow men, not your spouse. There's a marvelous scene in a marvelous movie. It's called The Price Above Rubies. It's set in the ultra-Orthodox world, the Hasidic world. And in one scene, the wife who has been asking some theological questions and not finding good answers asks her husband, who do you love more, me or God? And he says, how can you ask that question? You can't ask that kind of question. It's not a fair question. She said, I want to know, who do you love more, me or God? He says, well, of course, God. Long answer. <laughs> so how do we learn? How do we make the best of this suffering if we want to be open, if we want to learn, if we face the reality and want to do something with it? Well, we can do a few different things. We can learn compassion. If we suffer, we know others suffer. We know how they suffer. We can draw on our suffering to have sympathy for theirs. And we can also learn to prevent suffering in ourselves and in others. If situations cause pain, we can learn to avoid them or to deal with them or to solve them and to help others with the same. Think of the version of the golden rule that Rabbi Hillel came up with. Not love your neighbor as yourself. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. What you don't like, don't do to someone else. Or think of the wonderful lesson in the Torah, do not oppress the stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. You didn't like it, don't do it to someone else. Learn from your suffering to do better to others. But beyond those lessons of learned compassion or preventing suffering, is the lesson of the open heart. That we can use our suffering to break down the barriers, to open us to true connections. In the book of Kings, we read the story of Elijah. 
And no, he does not show up to the Seder in the Book of Kings. In fact, he's not sort of a Santa Claus, happy-go-lucky figure who shows up with nice little treats for boys and girls, or whatever's been interpreted through popular culture. He's sort of a bloody, enthusiastic, vibrant prophet of Yahweh who is very opposed to the gods and prophets of the Canaanites, and he causes 400 of the priests to die, and he sends bears after the children, and all kinds of terrible stories. But he has to flee, because, of course, he's challenging the power structure. He's not a yes prophet. He's a no prophet. So he has to flee. And he flees across the River Jordan. He goes up a mountain. It's almost a replay of Sinai. A little bit different. And he sees an earthquake. But God is not in the earthquake. And he feels a mighty wind. But God is not in the wind. And he feels a strong fire. God is not in the fire. But after the fire, a still, small voice. That's the truth. It's not the burning suffering, the blowing of wind, the shaking, the tremors. It's that still, small voice after the noise and the tumult in the shrine. Sometimes it takes danger and great noise and tumult to break through our barriers. But it's that still small voice, that small connection, that is a true connection that we have to learn from. You have to hurt before you know love. Very, very, very few people find love the first time. Because you have to know what it is to have an 80% fit and how bad that can be. And then try a 90% fit and how much better that is then when you find the 98% fit, you see how different that 8% is. You found 100%, let me know. My guess is 98%. It's pretty good. And 98% can last, but it's even easier to know that 98% when you find it. If you've had the painful experience of close but no cigar. They say it's better to have loved than lost, but the truth is, learning to love requires these mistakes, requires this pain, to break down these barriers, to teach us how to love each other. You see, what makes us uniquely human is not simply the rational mind, the intellectual analysis of what we need and who we are. We learn not by instinct, we learn by doing, by watching others' behavior, by practicing ourselves. We have a complex intellect, which includes complex emotions. You see, they say that being rational is what makes you human. That was the Enlightenment ideal. Being emotional makes you human, too. And if animals have instinctive emotions of fear or of nurturing, we have complex emotions of love and attraction and annoyance and frustration and everything else that makes up who we are. You see, we not only are learning how to be ourselves as we grow, we're also learning how to care for others. Now, our parents can be a limited role model. They can show us how to be loving to children, how to be loving to each other. But in the end, it's limited. Why? Because they are not us. You see, their dynamic is their dynamic, not our dynamic. We are not going to have the same relationships they do as much as we try, consciously or subconsciously, as much as we wind up with people like our parents and then we are shocked, shocked to find out that the person is like our parents. Nevertheless, we also find that our relationship has to be ours with us involved, not with them. 
You know, you talk to 12-year-old girls who have planned out every detail of their wedding except for one. That is, who are they going to be standing up there with? And it may be very different from what they expected when they were 12, and they may have to change everything. But that's the learning process. I've had this experience watching my children grow, interacting with their friends, who sometimes become their enemies and then become their friends again. This is the joys of first grade and preschool. But it's also a challenge for the parent because you watch them grow and interact and you realize that you can only help them so much. Because they are not you, they are not reliving your life, but even more so, you are not them. You don't know what they're doing and who they're with and in the end, they're going to become. And I remember the first day I dropped my daughter off at school, it was the second week of school, and she walks away from the car and says, you know, I get out of the car, I figure we have to walk her in and she's going to be nervous. Bye, Dad! She waves and toddles off into this huge playground with all these huge kids running around. But she's off and she's on her own and she's doing it, and I can't be with her every hour of the day and I can't watch what she's doing and save her every time she falls down, and that's part of life. And even more so, going out to friends, going out on trips, going out on dates, going out on who knows what. Well, that's, uh, who knows what is where it gets tricky. There's a wonderful line by the poet Khalil Gibran. He says, or he writes, You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. You give them that first push. You aim them. But in the end, they are living. They can steer. They can land. They will go where they are going to go. And just as we learned, they are going to have to learn. Now, I was rather socially awkward growing up. My wife was rather socially awkward growing up. When you crossbreed socially awkward, socially awkward, you're going to get at least socially awkward, if not doubly socially awkward. So we have pity on our children. And we know what they're going to go through. But we know also that we can help them as best we can from a distance. Sometimes we're the cheerleaders, sometimes we're the support network, sometimes we're the homely wind-up. But we hope as they go that they will learn what we learn to find our partnership. You need the open heart. That there is pain, no one deserves it. There is no virtue to suffering. You don't cultivate it. You don't go out and look for it. But in the end, if it teaches you to open your heart instead of close it, to develop compassion and not callous, then that will be a successful experience. Remember the broken heart that opens doors? We have to risk brokenness to achieve wholeness. And an absolute openness to the world can open all the doors to all the connections we want and all the treasures that those doors conceal. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.